The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, I was, it was great. I appreciate last weekend uh, you all giving me the freedom to leave and to go be with my family, to hang out with my sons and to see Zach over at Clemson. And I was thrilled that you had the chance to meet a man who is incredibly important in my life, uh, Shelton Sanford. He mentored me. He, he shared his life with me. We, we laughed a lot. We cried, as you heard, with the death of his wife. We rejoiced in his remarriage um, to Mary Ann. We watched him go through highs and lows. And I'm glad that you had a chance uh, to, to hear from him. And to hear uh, what was great about it is to, I listened to it this week, just the challenge of as we follow this servant king, as we're going through the gospel of, of Christ given to us by Mark, and we're seeing who Christ is and being challenged, we realize something, Christ's timing isn't our timing. Christ and God's plan isn't our plan all the time. But as a follower, We don't get to determine what the leader does. We don't get to even at some point say, I don't like your choice, especially if the leader happens to be the sovereign God of the universe, who quite honestly doesn't need our our permission uh, to go about, because what he actually has in mind is our very best. And what he has in mind is his very best. Everything that we heard us read uh, this morning, it said that he called us, he predestined us, he did all of these things, he loved us, he has justified us in Christ so that we would live lives that bring him honor and glory. Some of you are facing some incredibly difficult things. I was on the phone yesterday with Ken Crovo and Betsy's back in the hospital and she's not doing well. And... They're facing difficult things. Some of you are facing marital issues, health issues, children issues. And you need to be reminded that the God of this universe has you in mind. And his timing and his plan is quite perfect. And you can trust him. And you can continue to wholeheartedly follow him uh, as he leads you and takes you uh, along the way. That's what Mark has been teaching us about Christ. He hasn't been diving into all of the rich teaching of Jesus. We don't have the Sermon on the Mount like we do uh, in Matthew. We don't have some of the other teachings of the great I Am statements that we have in John's Gospel. But what we have uh, is this historic narrative uh, of who Jesus is, uh, how he lived, the the episodes of life that he was engaging in over the course of his three-year ministry. And what we are called to do is to say, I'm supposed to follow him. I'm supposed to become like him and live a life uh, like he lived, but to live it now in this world through the power of the Spirit that indwells me. And so this morning, we're going to continue on with the only uh, part of the the three-year history of Jesus Uh, the miracle at least, that was given to us in all four uh, of the Gospels, and that is the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus going to the disciples and walking on the water uh, afterwards and coming to them, all for the purpose to teach them who he is, to dispel misconceptions and misunderstandings, because it's important for you to know who you're following. 
You need to know who Christ is and get rid of preconceived notions and false notions uh, and, and social constructs about Christ and follow the biblical Christ in who he is. So let's ask God's blessing on this time of hearing his word and then studying it together. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you for your word. We ask now that you would, by your spirit, open our hearts and our minds and that you would bow and bend our knees, that we would be humbled under your word, that we would learn from it, that it's and you have authority over us. To Christ be the glory. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking and picking up in verse 30 and reading uh, down to the end of the chapter. Or at least, excuse me, to verse 52. This is the word of the Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place to themselves, by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot. All the towns got there ahead of him. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12, pe- 12 baskets full of broken pieces of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, uh, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. Let's first set the scene in the moments that we have, and then we're going to get into the the teaching part of these misconceptions that we have of Jesus, looking at three misconceptions that we have, and then what are the proper understandings or the proper conceptions of Jesus 
that we should take from it and then lead us into this beautiful time of celebrating the Lord's Supper uh, together today. Let's set the scene. Jesus has been ministering down in the southern part of Galilee. He'd gone home. He had been with his family and he was ministering there. And you would have thought it would have been a warm uh, welcome that here uh, the people of Nazareth and of Galilee uh, would have been amazed that out of their own, out of little Nazareth, out of little Galilee, uh, one of their own was actually the true Messiah of the world. But it said that the people rejected him. They said, who is this that preaches with such authority? And they questioned, isn't this just the son of Joseph and Mary? Isn't this so-and-so's brother and brother? Who is this guy? And Jesus realized, and he said, a prophet is without honor in his own home. And he left. And there's a deep and profound sadness uh, that is there. And Jesus leaves, and he heads back over towards the Sea of Galilee, maybe a 20-mile or so journey. And he's with his disciples, the 12. And it says that he sends them out two by two. And he commissions them, similarly to what we did this morning. He commissions them and sends them out. And he says, I'm giving to you my authority. I'm giving to you my power that you're going to have power over the demonic, a power over the evil presence of this world. Go out and serve and do it in a unique way. And he gave guidelines and told them how to do it. And Jesus was then alone, and, or at least without the disciples there uh, on the western side of the Sea of Galilee down in the south. And then the disciples came back. And when the disciples came back, they were exhausted. They were exhausted by giving out and giving out and giving out, by ministering and ministering, by doing all these things, but they were physically and humanly exhausted. We also get to see a side of Jesus' humanity because it says that Jesus was, it doesn't say that he was tired, but he says we need to go away to a lonely place and be alone. And it's an odd thing for him to say that until you look just a few verses earlier and you realize that Jesus' cousin, his closest friend and ally in the kingdom at that time, John the Baptist, had been brutally beheaded by Herod and his head was paraded out on a platter for all to see. And word came back to Jesus and in his humanity, it broke his heart. And Jesus said, we need to get away. We need to go and be alone. We're so busy and we're so tired that we can't even eat. People are around us all the time. And you you know that feeling, don't you, at times? If you're a parent uh, of children, you know that feeling. And with multiple schedules and and, and multiple work schedules and all of the different things, you know that. And if you've been and you're serving the needs of others and you're caring for them in ministry, you know that you, you feel the power of God working through you. But at the same time, physically, you're just like, oh. And that's what they were like. It's like, oh. So they got into a boat and they were heading north. And they were going to head to the northeast part of the Sea of Galilee, up towards uh, Capernaum and Bethsaida, into the very rural areas. It's funny to say that, because think about it, it was rural anyway, uh, but this was even more rural. This was like the unincorporated area outside of the little town that was outside of the county seat down in the south. And so he was heading up and out. But they must not have been far from the shore as the boat was going on the sea, because the Sea of Galilee literally is just a large lake. And the people began to see and recognize them, 
And they're like, that's Jesus. And those are the disciples. And they're heading somewhere. We've got to get there before they get there. And they started moving up on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And as they were going, people were going, where are you going in such, uh, in such haste? Why are you going? Oh, well, that's Jesus of Nazareth and his disciples. They're heading that way. So we're going to figure out why they're heading that way. And so all of these people, up towards of 20,000 people, now we're running along the shoreline and getting to where Jesus was going to dock before he got there. And you can only imagine, humanly speaking, as they pulled up to the dock, pulled up to the place to, to moor their boat, that they were probably like, 20,000 people? It says 5,000 men, and most estimate that uh, wives and children were with them. And the estimates are anywhere between fifteen and 20,000 or more people were gathered there in this area between Capernaum and between Bethsaida in the northern part of the hill country of Galilee, or the hill country of Israel. And Jesus is there at the boat, and he looks over the crowd, and it says, he realized they were sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. And interestingly, he began to teach. He began to teach, and we don't have the teaching. Because this is Mark, this is Peter. He's just wanting to give us the storyline. He's wanting to give us that historic narrative uh, that we have. So we don't know necessarily exactly what's said. You can go to some of the other Gospels and find out. But it would have been along the lines of, blessed are the weak, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mounts and those kind of teachings. And he would have taught what he normally taught, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he would have taught about who he was and what it would have been like to be in the kingdom of God, to understand him as Messiah. And he began to teach this vast crowd. And so now evening began to come and the people were there. And the disciples, being incredibly perceptive of the obvious, said, hey, these folks need to go eat some dinner and we don't have enough money and we don't have enough food to feed them. And Jesus says, you feed them. So you've got this whole scene that's going on. Well, right in the middle of it, we learned several things. We learned that even the disciples had no clue of who Jesus was at this point. They really missed it. They didn't understand what he was doing uh, in the feeding of the 5,000s and the breaking of the loaves, uh, those five loaves and those two fishes, and what was happening in his teaching and what was going on. They had no real understanding when he put them on a boat and told them to head uh, northeast up to uh, Bethsaida. And they were going against the winds, the nor'easter winds that were coming down uh, out of the Jordan Valley, uh, down and pressing against their boats. And they were rowing and rowing. And Jesus comes to them on the water and they see him and they perceive him to be a ghost. And he gets in the boat and you can see almost a disappointment in him. But he, he doesn't have those emotions as we do. But it says that they didn't understand the loaves and the fishes and their hearts were hard. So it's important for us, if these 12 guys, here's my assumption. I'm going I'm to give you a little bit of an assumption this morning. If these 12 guys who hung out with Jesus every day for three years, who saw firsthand Jesus healing people, who listened firsthand without need of interpretation and interpreters, but in their native language heard Jesus speaking and were at his feet, walking with him, hanging out with him, getting to ask him, think about this, you should be a little jealous of this, because you know all of you have that question which you're going to, you know, when I get to heaven, 
I can't wait to ask God X, whatever that is. By the way, you probably will never ask that question because you'll find out how silly it is in the presence of this king and his glory and all of that. Uh, but these guys got to ask all those questions, even stupid ones. Excuse me, parents and kids, I know you're not supposed to say the word stupid. Um, but like James and John, who's going to be first in the kingdom? Who's greater, me or him, and, and all of this? They got to ask all the questions. And so I'm figuring if these 12 guys didn't get it, we probably don't get it fully either. And so that's where we're going to start today. We're going to start with that assumption that we have misconceptions and misunderstandings about who Jesus is. And in this passage, three of them at least are unearthed. Three of them are exposed. And, the, and they may surprise you a little bit. The first one, uh, the first misconception about Jesus is that he's a political uh, leader, that he is somehow a revolutionary leader. And we're going to first give the misconception and then on the flip side of that in a second, uh, give the proper understanding or the right conception of who Jesus is. So the first misconception is that he's a revolutionary and political figure. And the way that we know this uh, is because of what Jesus said as soon, or at least what was perceived by Jesus and then written down by the illumination of the Holy Spirit uh, by Mark those years later. It said that Jesus saw, saw the people, and he said they are sheep without a shepherd. What image comes to your mind? It's Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down, and it's this sweet little scene. That's the wrong scene. You need to go further back in your Bible. You need to go to Leviticus chapter 27 to the transition from Moses as the leader, political leader of Israel. You need to go back there and to when Joshua was coming in. And here's what took place in that transition. Interesting words that Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. He wasn't looking for a sweet little shepherd. He was looking for another Moses. He was saying, God, this group of people who is being led into the promised land, they need a leader. They need a strong political kingly leader a military leader to lead them into the promised land. And Jesus looked at it and interestingly used the same language. And what he saw was a people who thought they knew who he was and what his mission was, and that his mission was to come and to remove Rome from power and to reestablish Israel as a world power, as an independent, autonomous power within the ancient Near East. That's what they were thinking. And another reason that we believe this is true is because where this took place. Interestingly, this took place up in the northeast regions uh, of Israel, up in the sort of hill country where there wasn't a high population. And interestingly, several of the messianic rebellions, the fake messiahs, started right in that region. This is where the zealots lived. Uh, this is where those who hated Rome, who wanted to have an insurgency against Rome, were coming and they were starting their insurgencies. It was out of this region. This would have been the region that would have had the satellites uh, from Rome looking down on it and making sure and checking for terror camps. You see, terror camps are nothing new. 
that in Israel, even there, there were camps and there were training. There were people starting and established who were going to come up and they were going to try to fight against the establishment of Rome. And one of the greatest ones was there at Masada at the fortress. And you know where that started? Right out of this region. And so Jesus is going into the political hotbed of the zealots. And you see them there. And you know that something had to happen because he teaches them, he feeds them their food. And then as soon as it's done, what would you expect to happen? Man, it's been an awesome day. 20,000 people fed with miraculous bread and fish. Everybody hearing the teacher, teaching of the most incredible preacher ever to grace the face of the earth, to be in the presence of God himself. They've got full bellies and they're just sitting back and Jesus looks at the disciples and it says, immediately. He says, guys, get in the boat and get out of here now. That's what took place. What in the world? It seems like such a non sequitur. Why would Jesus do that? Oh, you as a good Bible student would go, I should probably go read one of the other accounts of the feeding of the 5,000 to get a better picture. And you would have flipped over to John chapter 6 and looked at verse 15, and you would have seen this. And Jesus, perceiving that they were going to take him by force to make him king, put the disciples in the boat and told them to leave. Do you see what was going on? And oh, by the way, what was the event that just happened that prompted Jesus to head up north? One of the great religious leaders of Jerusalem, of, of Israel, of Judaism, was murdered and beheaded by a Roman leader. If you don't think word hadn't spread throughout all of Israel that John the Baptist had been beheaded because some silly little teenage girl danced before the Tetrarch. And then she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And this man with no backbone and this man with no spine beheaded John the Baptist, the prophet who came before Christ, the Old Testament Elijah who came in and was preaching the word. He was beheaded. If you don't think this place was ripe for revolution, you haven't studied politics or history ever. And Jesus was right there. And he said, I'm not that kind of leader. I do not fit into your political constructs. I am neither Republican nor Democrat. I am not libertarian and I am not independent. I am God. I am not communist and I am not democratic. Uh, I am not anything other than God seated on his throne with the full expectation that my rule is established and that you follow me in whatever political system you find yourself living. You see, we have the same problem they did. They wanted to take Jesus by force and make him into a king that would run out of Rome. We try to make him into whatever we need in our political realms to make ourselves. We want to bring back the wonderful days of the 40s, 50s, right? Oh, when life used to be so grand. When everybody used to go to church together and apple pies were warming on the windowsill. And all we said, yes, ma'am, and we said, yes, sir, and the education system was fine in America, except if you were an African-American in the South, wasn't all a great time for you. Or if you were a woman who had no voice within the government, it wasn't really probably a great time for you. You see, we look back with nostalgia over the days of our past, and we say, oh, only if we could get Jesus to come in and he would reestablish this wonderful, godly country uh, of America. And that things would be right in the world again. And Jesus says, it's not about America. 
It's not about Washington, D.C. It's not about Columbia. It's not about any of that. It's about me, who's a different kind of political leader. I'm a different kind of revolutionary leader. I am leading a revolution, but it's different than anything you've constructed in your mind. And so there's this misconception of who Jesus is. You know what the Christians who are Democrats think about the Christians who are Republicans? They don't think there are any. And you want to know what the Republican Christians think about the Christians who are Democrats? They don't think there are any. And Jesus is saying, oh, you've missed it. You've tried to take me by force and turn me into your political king. And I'm not that for you. I'm not bringing back the blue laws. I'm not bringing back the way it used to be. I'm bringing something totally different into the world. That's the first misconception, that he's some kind of political and revolutionary leader. The second misconception is he's just some kind of cool miracle worker. That Jesus is just this really cool guy who can do really cool stuff. Because it says that there were all of these people, 5,000 men and upwards of 20,000 people, and there were five loaves of bread and two fishes. And this isn't like there were five massive loaves of bread that could feed 20,000 people, or that there were these massive fish. It was five traveling pieces of bread, which were small loaves, uh, and they would have kept in their satchels with them as they traveled around. Because, you see, bread today isn't like bread back then. Bread back then was absolutely necessary for life. If you wanted to equate something to life, you would have used the word bread. And so Jesus took these five small loaves of bread, and then he took basically two sardines. He took two small fish, and he performed an incredible miracle. But it says that he looked up into heaven, and he blessed God. He said, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, the maker who made the universe, maker of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he began to distribute and to break the bread. And the bread was enough to feed the people. And he took the fish and he would have blessed it in a similar way. Interesting, the only difference in that Jewish prayer was that the Jewish leader or family uh, patriarch of the family would have looked down. It says that Jesus looked up to his Father in heaven. And this miracle took place. And it says this, there was so much food that not only was there some left, but there was so much that everyone was satisfied. They had just walked all around the Sea of Galilee. They had sat out. Now, granted, it was the springtime. And the reason we know it was the springtime uh, was this, that Mark said, and they sat down in groups of 50s and 100s in the green grass. And you would have, as a good Bible scholar, and you're learning uh, with Andrew Shank over in how to study the Bible, you would have gone, green grass. How would we have known it was green grass? Well, green grass, oh, well, we would have seen and known in that area uh, of the world, it was green only in one time of the year, and that was in the spring, just before the Passover. And so they would have been there in the spring, and it was a wonderful climate, but they'd been outside, and they were hungry, and they were thirsty, and they needed food. And the disciples were like, we don't know how to do this. We've got 200 denarii. We've got enough money that's about 200 days worth uh, of wages here. What are we going to do? And it's not like you could send them out or call the caterer. And Jesus said, you are going to do this. You're going to take part in this miracle. Can you imagine the 12 disciples? Can you imagine the one who carried the five loaves and the two fish up and then kept going back to Jesus and getting another basket and taking it out? Probably, I would have been like, where's this stuff coming from? I mean, you're just looking up sleeves and like, what in the world? And this miracle is taking place. And you don't know, it's not told to us if it's taking place in the basket. If he handed them an empty basket and as they walked, it was filled. Don't you think Jesus, I saw one pastor uh, read it this way. Jesus could have been like Dumbledore from, you know, 
Harry Potter and gone poof, and everyone would have had a meal just sitting right in front of them, just like it was in the dining hall. But Jesus didn't. And so there was this miracle that took place. And the people were amazed. And the disciples were amazed. And then he did another miracle. And he walked on the water later in, or actually the next morning at 3 in the morning, between 3 and 6 in the morning on that hour of the watch. So he walked across the top of the water. It's fascinating to study. Really brilliant men and women who tried to say that there's a shoal that runs somewhere along in there. And he wasn't really walking on the water, but he was walking. It looked like he was on the water. That he was actually in six feet of, six inches of water walking in the shallows. It doesn't give us that freedom. But we try to take away these things. And we say, Jesus is just some miracle worker. You see, we like that Jesus is a miracle worker. We want him to be just a miracle worker. We don't want him to be the Lord. We don't want him to be our king. We just want him to fix whatever we've got going on. When we're sick, we want to be healed. When our marriages are busted, we want them to be better. When we're bankrupt, we want the miracle of looking out and all of a sudden there being enough money in the bank account. When things are going wrong, we want everything. We want the miracle. We want him to be this wonderful little miracle worker. But Jesus says, I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm more than that. And the final thing he says is, I'm not just some spiritual being either. I've got to move a little quicker. We're running out of time. Uh, I'm not just some spiritual being because the disciples saw him walking on the water and their first thing was he's a ghost. They're like, he's something, he's different, but we're not sure what he is. And that's what a lot of us think about Jesus. He's something more than a man, but he's not fully God. We're not sure what he is, so we'll just call him a super spiritual person and we'll follow him and we'll throw him into this category with the other super spiritual leaders uh, around the world, uh, with Buddha and with, uh, with Muhammad and with other wonderful mystic leaders and spiritual leaders of the world. Jesus is just one of them. And Jesus is saying, I'm more than that. So those are some of the misconceptions that we have. So let's quickly now talk about what are the true conceptions of Jesus? What are the true things that we need to know about Jesus? Well, the first thing is this. He's not just a revolutionary. He's a true shepherd. And interestingly, when he came and he saw the people and he looked out on the people, it says that he had compassion on them and he taught them and provided for them. He taught them and provided for them. He didn't arm them with guns. He didn't arm them with uh, tools of assassination and suicide bombs and all the different things uh, that modern-day uh, revolutionaries would do. He didn't hack the system and try to bring it down electronically. He said, I'm going to teach you. Now, if you go and you study God's Word, you find out that the Word of God is often equated to another word, and it's called the word bread. And so it's interesting that this this shepherd, this true shepherd, comes and he says, I'm not like you think I am, but I'm going to come in and I'm going to teach you a different way. I'm going to establish a different way. It's important for you to know my word. It's important for you to know that I am the word made flesh, that I am the true bread of life, and that it's my word which will sustain you. It's my word which will be the thing that will cause you never to be hungry again in all of the world, that it doesn't matter if Rome is in charge. It doesn't matter if Greece is in charge. It doesn't matter if a Republican is in charge or a Democrat is in charge. It doesn't matter if an African-American is in charge or a woman's in charge. It doesn't matter who's in charge. Because the true shepherd says that in the midst of any situation in which you find you, if you have my word implanted in you, if you know who I am and you know who you are within me, 
then you can live powerfully within whatever system you have. You can do these things differently. You don't have to overthrow the government in order to come and to be a follower of mine. Be a follower of mine first and foremost is what Jesus is saying. So he taught them and then he provided for them. He goes, I'm a different kind of leader. He said, I'm going to provide for your needs. When is the only time you really see political leaders in our day at soup kitchens and dealing with the homeless and dealing with those? It's photo ops and it's re-election time. What they're really doing is they're using people for their own ends. Jesus used himself. Jesus said, I'm going to give of myself to serve your needs because I'm a different kind of leader. I'm a different kind of shepherd who's going to come and who's going to lead you into the promised land. Another thing about the misconception is he's more than a miracle worker, but he is a miracle worker. What he is is he's a transformer of the world. Because there was a great... A quote that was given by uh, the German philosopher uh, Bernard Jorgen uh, Moltmann. And he said this Jesus' healings are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Hear that again. Jesus' healings are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. What he was saying was this Why did Jesus do miracles? Was it just to set aside the natural order for the day and suspend the natural law for the day? Or was it that he was saying this, what you have in front of you today isn't natural. The reason that he would come and cure cancer is to say cancer was never in the garden. And what I do as the true transformer of the world, as the true shepherd of the world, is I'm coming in and I'm raising the dead because I want to show you that death isn't natural. That leprosy isn't natural. And so I'm not suspending the natural order. I'm actually reintroducing the one thing that is truly natural, and that is the garden. And I'm taking you back to how it once was, and I'm pointing you forward to how it will be when I reign. And so when Jesus did miracles, they were for a purpose. He wasn't just a sideshow. In today's movements in the church, miracles are sideshows. Healings have become sideshows. And what Jesus is trying to say is, I'm still in the miracle-forming business. And here's the miracle that he takes now. Here's this. I'm shining light into your dead hearts. I'm leading you back to a garden. I'm leading you back to a place. This team that's going down to Haiti, guys, listen up, ladies on that team. Here's what I hope you see is miracles happen in your midst. Because what will be that miracle in your midst will be this, that you're reestablishing to the people of Haiti. Here's what you have to look forward to one day. Maybe not in this life. But one day we'll be in a place where there's no more tears, there's no more suffering, there's no more sadness, there's no more cancer, there's no more death and goodbye. He's bringing it back. He's saying, I'm doing these miracles, but it's more than just some sideshow miracle worker. Because the fact of the matter is, Satan can do some pretty weird and wild things too. But he's not reestablishing what was. He's trying to deceive those who listen and watch and follow him. So he is a miracle worker, but he's one who's the restorer of the world. And finally, he is more than just some spiritual entity. Look at what happened. Boy, we really got to fly. <laughs> he walked by the boat. It says that he was going, it's this really weird little passage. And he says that he was going to pass them by. And you go, what in the world? He was going to walk by them and get on the other side? No, it was a word that, that was actually used other places. It was used of Jesus when he passed by Moses at Mount Sinai, same language. When Jesus passed by Elijah on Mount Horeb, same language. 
And when Jesus passed by Job, and in Job it says this, oh, you are the God who treads on the waters who passes me by. Same language. Jesus was walking by them to show them who he was. Not to get to the other side first and go, I can walk on water and you can't. He was walking by them to say, I'm the God of the universe. I can walk on water. And then when they didn't know who he was and they cried out in terror, how did he respond? I am. He used the language of God speaking on Sinai. Who shall I tell the people that you are? Who should I tell the people sent me? Tell them that I am sent you. And Jesus said, Yahweh, I am. And he got into the boat and nature silenced at his presence. Disciples didn't get it. Because they didn't understand the loaves and fishes. They didn't understand all of this. Here's my hope today for us. We're coming to a table where the great I am is saying this, and he uses language in this text. Jesus took the, the bread and he broke it. He blessed it and he broke it. If you were to move a few chapters down in Mark 14 at the Last Supper, Jesus took bread. He blessed it, and he broke it. Because what Jesus is saying is, I'm the kind of shepherd, I am the kind of miracle-working, transforming God, I am the true God of the universe who comes in and says, the only way that you're going to be saved is if I'm broken. If my body is broken for you and my blood is shed for you, that's the only way you get to enter into my kingdom. So see him today for who he truly is, the great I am. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to prepare and come to this great feast. Let's pray.